I, I wanted to actually tell you a little bit about myself, but I thought about it, and I could give you a very boring laundry list of details about me. I could tell you my age, that I'm married, I had three kids, where I went to school, and you guys would be falling asleep before I ever got to actually open the Word of God. So I thought about the passage we're going to be reading tonight, and the passage talks a lot about rewards. I said, well, there's a perfect opportunity here. I just so happen to have some rewards. I happen to have some rewards for anyone uh, who will make my life easy and ask me questions about me. Anything you want to ask me. And this is a dangerous game, I know, uh, because (laughs) you may ask me things I don't want to answer, but I'm going to answer them anyway, because that's the rules of the game. And anyone who asks me a question, I'm going to go ahead and throw you one of these candies. It's Reese's, Kit Kats, Hershey's, and Reese's Pieces. But hold on. I'll, I'll call on you. There's a rule here. Whoever asks me the most interesting question uh, will not just get a piece of candy, but get a nice Starbucks gift card, which I'm, I'm not rich. It's only five bucks. Don't get too excited. It's enough to buy you a Starbucks coffee. Uh, and y'all get to decide who asked the most interesting question. So this isn't just going to be me. Y'all get to decide when this is done, who asked the most interesting question. But tell me your name so I can quickly forget it. I'm sorry I'm bad with names, but tell me your name in my attempt to understand it. And uh, Alejandro, what time do I need to be done here tonight uh, to go to this, this group time? 8.20ish. 8.20ish? Okay, we'll, so we'll see if I get that far. Um, <laughs> so go ahead and tell me your name, and we'll spend just a few minutes, or at least until the candy's gone. Uh, you wanted to ask a question first, or you have your hand up at least. I am, oh gosh. An easy one. I am 30. Yes, how old am I? I am 38. I'm 38 this year, so I'm 37 right now. Uh, what do you want? Hershey's, Kit Kat, Reese's Pieces stuff? Uh, Kit Kat. Kit Kat? You got it. I'm Zachary, and do your kids go to private or public school? Uh, neither. My kids are homeschooled. And Zachary, what do you want? Reasons pieces. Okay. I'm Emery, and what's the funnest adventure you've ever been on? The funnest adventure I've ever been on. The funnest adventure I've ever done is this past summer. I did the hotter than um, 80s bike ride. Uh, it was a 100-mile bike ride that I got to do, and it was super fun. Thank you. Oh, what? What can you do? Kick out? Okay. Emery's in the lead so far to me. My name's Max, and what was your favorite book as a child? Ooh, my favorite book as a child. I'm going to say it's a book called The Devil's Arithmetic. Uh, It was a story about a girl who suddenly found herself in the Holocaust times and had to uh, do some memorization to actually remember what her number is. What is Reese's Pieces? Pieces. Okay, and I'm not a sports guy, so I'm not going to get this perfectly every time. Okay, now, uh, just behind you was, yeah. My name is Kaden, and when you said we were talking about rewards in the Bible, what rewards are we talking about? Oh, good question, uh, but I'm not going to answer that. I did say I'd answer anything. Uh, so we are going to be talking about the nature of rewards. Uh, we're going to be talking just a few examples of the rewards God has promised us and kind of what our mindset should be, but it's going to be a while before we actually get to talk to any about that. What, uh, what would you like here? Kit Kat? Okay, so got some of those. Nice. Okay, uh, yes, right here. Yes. I 
Sage, we remember you. Say, <laughs> so I have been pulled over twice. Once because I uh, I had expired registration. I was on my way to school, and you know the cop just sat there and pulled over anyone with that. So I got that dismissed. Uh, a second time because a truck t tried to run me over, and uh, the guy got up right behind me, followed me through stoplight, stalked me, called the cops, said I was breaking a bunch of laws. Uh, they couldn't do anything because they hadn't seen me do anything because I hadn't done anything. Uh, they just harassed me. Uh, and I'll go ahead and say a third time. Uh, I didn't get pulled over for that. Okay, what what do you want? What do you want? I, I got Kit Kats, Reese's Pieces, uh, Hershey's, and... Okay, I'm right next to you. Noelle. Noelle. Um, who was the most influential person in your life? Ooh, uh, the most influential person in my life. That is probably going to be uh, my dad. Uh, he was definitely, definitely just someone that I love to talk to. He was a country, uh, country. He was an elder at Countryside uh, for a long time, and he passed away three years ago, the week before my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. okay, in the back. I should look very familiar. I attend uh, the Lenos. And uh, we actually just split. There was some bad blood. No, no there, wasn't, there wasn't bad blood. We, 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 we got too big, so we split. I'm still with Lenos. Uh, so yes, I, I do look familiar. And for once, it's not because you know my siblings. You don't know any of my siblings. I'm finally free from, from that. What would you? The Hershey's. The Hershey's. I do, just not very well. Okay, uh, in the very far back. Um, my name's Fox, and what is your profession currently, and is it the profession that you wanted to have? Ooh, good question. The, my profession currently is I am a industrial controller programmer. Uh, that means that I go out to dangerous places, and I make the equipment do what it's supposed to do. Uh, I go to water wastewater treatment plants, I go to fracking pads, and I have a lot of fun. It was not what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be just a computer guy my whole life, but... Fortunately, a guy found out about me and said, you know what, I got a job for you, and he was right. It is definitely a fun, fun job. Okay, I got time just for, for a couple more. I'm trying to answer them fast. <laughs> it keeps me employed. I think it is great. Okay, uh, right here in front. Uh, I'm Dylan, and have you ever been camping? Uh, Dylan, yes, I grew up. Wait, 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 hold on. I didn't send you a candy today. What, what would you like? Whatever. Whatever's fine. Okay, uh, I got first one in here. Awesome. Thank you. It, I wish I could say I, I planned it. Um, okay. Yes, I've gone camping. I grew up as a Boy Scout. Uh, I was never prepared, despite our motto. But thank, thank you. I don't know who laughed, but I appreciate that. Uh, I, but I, I did that, and then also growing up in Awana, we did a lot of Awana campouts. I had a lot of fun with it. We always went up to Possum Kingdom Lake. Um, tend to rain every single time, but it was still a lot of, a lot of fun. Okay, now uh, in the back, dark hair. Uh, my name's Asher, and if you were a kangaroo, what three things would you put in your pouch? I was a kangaroo. Uh, what two things would I put in my pouch? Well, there's a difficulty there. Not every kangaroo has a pouch. I am a boy, therefore I, I, I would have no pouch in which to put things. However, however, uh, if I had a pouch anyway, what I would put in it? Um, 
I would put some pizza. I, I don't know, are kangaroos allowed like pizza? I'm going to anyway. And I'd probably put my cell phone. That seems like a pretty handy, but then I'd get pizza on it. I, well, you know, you can wipe it down when you're done. What would y'all like for? Uh, uh, do you have any Kit Kats? I do have a Kit Kat, yep. Take a herpes. A herpes. <laughs> okay, um, right here. My name's Fletcher, and what's your favorite place to go on vacation? Ooh, my favorite place to go on vacation is nowhere. I, <laughs> I, I miss, okay, growing up, every single weekend, we went up to my grandparents' house. Not every weekend, every three-day weekend, we'd go up to my grandparents' house. I hate going on vacation now, because it was an eight-hour drive minimum to get to the northwest corner of Arkansas, Beautiful place, lovely lake uh, by Greer's Ferry Lake, uh, but I, I just got I got vacationed out. I love staying home. I much rather prefer staycations. But if you force me to go somewhere, I would say my favorite place I've ever been is the Big Island of Hawaii. It is not the tourist spot. Uh, we went there, my wife and I, on our honeymoon, and she spent an hour and a half on a beach. Uh, she has yet to forgive me for this. But we did so many fun things while we were there. I, I definitely, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to make the most of it. It was a learning experience for my wife, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, she stuck with me, so it all turned out fine. What would you like? Uh, Reese's. Reese's, okay. Okay, last question here, last question. Um, okay, I'll, take, I'll take these last three, these last three hands. We'll, we'll start with on the edge here. I'm Alex. What's your favorite Bible Ooh. My favorite Bible verse is Ephesians 2, 4, which starts off, but God. Uh, I think it is an amazing verse that contrasts our absolute dead state before we come to know God and how God was the transition point in which our whole life changes. Thank you. When were you baptized? I was baptized when I was six. Uh, it was at Countryside. It was in a, her a horse trough. Uh, you can no longer go to the, like the actual spot where I was baptized now, it used to be a tree. Uh, the tree died and we lost our pastor in the same year. I really miss that tree. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't tell your, it's for Corey, your parents are going to hear this. Um, but I, I did, uh, that's where I was baptized. My brother is actually the one who shared the gospel message with me. Um, and it was the first time I got really do public speaking, and I turned out that I love it. I stole that microphone, and I just launched into it, and uh, yeah, that's, that's where I was baptized. What would you like here? Don't care. Don't care? Reese's. Reese's? Okay, I got some pieces, and I got a cup. Okay, last question I saw a hand raised. Yes. What was your favorite car you ever My favorite car I ever owned was a 1993 Geostorm. Um, <laughs> it is a... It is only a car because it's too big to be called a go-kart, uh, but it was, it was wonderful. It had pick up and go. Uh, I loved to, to race it. I, I did some stuff to it to, to make it go a little bit faster. And it was something you're like, this, there's no way this car can, can compete. Uh, but it was so light that four linebackers could pick it up and carry it off. Now, to be fair, I did grow up at Trinity High School and our linebackers um, are the size of my Geostorm. So, I mean, <laughs> some pretty big guys. Oh, yeah, I had more candy. Uh, what, what, what do you like here? Reese's. Reese's? Okay, I got, a, I got a cup. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we, we're going to stop there. Unfortunately, I need to move on, move on with time. Okay, yeah. Who do you think had the best question of the group here? And what was it? 
Y'all have to decide. That's the rules. I got a Starbucks card, but it has to be for the most interesting question. Sage. Sage and how many times I got pulled over? No, but I have committed federal crimes. <laughs> but it, it, was too, it would have been a great question, but I'm sorry you missed it. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, guys, thank you. Thank you for helping me out with this. Um, I, I do realize it's a bit unfair of me to put the pressure on y'all, but you have definitely stepped up uh, to the task of asking me questions. So I think that was a lot more fun than anything I would have thought of to actually answer for you. So we are going to get into the Bible lesson now. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 40. So get out your Bibles and turn there, or load your apps and scroll there, whichever ones you are most comfortable with. I promise not to make too much of a fuss if it's on a phone. Just make sure it's on silent, please. Uh, and as we get started here, let's go ahead and turn to, uh, and start time in a, in a word of prayer as we get going. Uh, and as my my app crashes on me. That is not what you want to see when you first start your lesson. Whoa. Okay, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and pray, and then I will fuss about the fact that my uh, document's not loading. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time to turn to your word. We ask that you would enlighten our hearts so that we might understand what it is you want us to in this passage, that we might learn more about you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Matthew 10. We're going to be in verse 40, uh, and my app will decide that it's going to work for me. It just might not do it right now. And if it doesn't work there, it's okay. I can use my phone. It's just not what I wanted to do. You want to use a Google, Google document? Yeah, it was a Google document, but I mean, if, if it's not like it just ran me down. You need the Wi-Fi? No, I, I actually have it on my... There we go. There you go. You do. Now, my, my phone acts as an access point when it wants to, which is not often. It's lazy. You do better on the dangerous machinery than you do on your iPad? Never. <laughs> no, no. In fact, I, I actually told someone recently, I'm like, look, I, I am a, a great programmer, a humble programmer, uh, but I, I'm not an engineer. I'm not responsible for safety. You have to have someone tell me what to do safety-wise. <laughs> And this is, this is why, because it, uh, it sometimes doesn't work. But it's okay, because it loaded, and that's how, we, that's how I roll with it in the job site, too. Just keep going until it starts working. So Matthew 10, starting in verse 40. Uh, let's read God's word together. It says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. If I had to summarize the point of these three verses into a single sentence, it would be this. God has promised his faithful rest and rewards. I'm going to admit, I feel like a health, wealth, prosperity preacher when I say that. Uh, but it is, it is absolutely true. God has promised his faithful rest and rewards. Uh, 
And this evening, we're going to be proving five fundamental truths about this passage that God actually does have to say about giving us rest and giving us his rewards. I'm going to give you them here right now. So you can keep these in mind as we talk about it throughout this evening. The first thing is that God has promised us rest. The second is that God is going to be the one who sets the criteria for receiving his rewards. The third is that God is the one who gives his rewards. The fourth is that God has a purpose for giving his rewards. And the fifth and final one is that God has set the timing for receiving his rewards. So let's look at this passage that tells us that, uh, let's go to this passage on how it tells us that God has promised us rest. Our passage starts off saying, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now I want you to stop and think for just a moment. I've told you, this has to do with God's rest. You should be thinking at this point, how on earth does this sentence have anything to do with God promising us rest? Now, if you're anything like me, we just picked this up. You haven't, you haven't read the previous passage in a while. And you're not going to be able to really see how these three verses connect with everything else God said in chapter 10, let alone how this connects to providing us rest. We are jumping into a passage not just in the middle of things, but in Christ's final thoughts about something. So let us make sure we have a proper context for this passage as uh, so we can actually understand what's going on in, in it. And now let's, let's start off easy. I'm going to ask you an easy question. Nice, nice first thing here. Who is talking in this passage? Yeah. Well, Jesus. <laughs> yes, Jesus, because it's in red. But even if it wasn't in red, I don't have any more candy. You don't have. To... Not going to get anything else if we're answering smart. But no, uh, it's Jesus. We know this because if we go back to the very beginning, we see Jesus uh, uh, bringing his disciples together. And I actually gave you a bit of a hint here because we are going to be moving on to a bit, a little bit harder of a question. Uh, and I know, I know that when you started Matthew 10, it was about 12 weeks ago. And for those weeks, you weren't even here. But I want you all to think hard. What is going on here in chapter 10? And I'm not going to complain if you have to look and say verses 1 and 5, just off the top of my head perhaps, for figuring out what's going on. He is talking about his disciples, or talking to his disciples, but what is he talking about? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jesus has called his disciples to himself and is about to send them out on a missionary journey. And he's given them authority over three things. He says, I've given you all authority over uh, unclean spirits, under all diseases, and over afflictions. And as he's about to send them out, having given them authority over these three things, Jesus calls them himself and he gives them instructions for this journey. And once he finishes giving them the instructions, we see in verse 16 that he transitions, doesn't he? And he transitions to giving them warnings. What does Jesus warn them about, starting in verse 16? Don't, don't speak at once. I, I need you all to, to calm down a little bit. All right? It's in, it's in verse 16. Take a quick look. What is Jesus warning them about, starting in verse 16? What's that? Wolves. 
Wolves, wolves, sorry. Once I hear something wrong, I'm just going to keep hearing it wrong. I heard molds. I'm, I'm like, I've, I'm confident that's not what you're saying. No, wolves, yes. Uh, I'm not an old man, but I am uh, a deaf man. So, so speak up. Don't, don't be uh, scared of getting an answer. Even if you get it wrong, I'm still going to uh, probably mishear you and think you said it right anyway. Yeah, he starts talking about wolves. What else does Jesus warn them about in, starting in verse 16? Yeah. Persecution, yeah, that, that is the overall banner that Jesus is talking about here in verse 16. He is warning them about upcoming persecutions. And I wish I could tell you that these warnings of persecutions were just for the disciples. I mean, he starts off talking to the disciples, this is what I want you to do for this missionary journey. And then, unfortunately, it does transition to all of us. Uh, we are included in these warnings. And we know this because if we look at verse 21, we see Jesus speaking not specifically to them anymore, but in generic terms. He doesn't say, Peter, your brother is going to rise up against you and deliver you to death. No, he says, in general, brothers are going to rise up against other brothers. Uh, We will see that brothers kill brothers. Parents will kill their children. Children will have their parents put to death. Families are going to be ripped apart. This is not just about them. This is about all of us and the persecution that we're going to be facing. And why does this happen? Why are families being ripped apart? In verse 22, it gives us the answer. It says it's because anyone who is in Christ will be hated for the sake of Jesus' name. And again, in verse 24, we see Jesus warning them. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In fact, four times we see the same kind of idea, these same similar words, uh, as Jesus warns us that if we are his servants, we can expect the same kind of treatment that he has received. And let me pause here just for a moment. We're, we're working up to something. We're, we're working up to answering the question, how does verse 40 have anything to do with God promising us rest? I know, I, I know it seems like I've gone off on a rabbit trail, but I'm going to bring you back just for a minute. This is the question we're answering. But to understand the answer, you have to first understand what it is we are getting rest from. And I don't want you to be overwhelmed as we talk about the reality of persecution as a Christian. If you are in Christ today and you come to a passage like this and it does make you a little anxious, I want you to know all you need to do is take a deep breath and stand firm. Satan is at work to rob you of the peace that God has promised you whenever you feel anxiety because you hear about upcoming persecution. God has promised you rest. But if you're not in Christ, I do hope that this passage causes you some anxiety. It is right and proper that these warnings cause you to realize that if you're not in Christ, you are among those who are persecuting Christ's beloved. And I pray that this anxiety would cause you to turn away before it's too late. I mean, Romans 1 has a dire warning for those who are among those who are persecuting Christ's beloved. And that is that the longer you stand opposed to him, the more you're going to be suppressing the truth you already know about him. And eventually, you will give your support 
to those who do likewise, and God will deliver you over to your own depraved mind. So I would plead with you to turn aside from your current way of life and embrace what you already know to be true. And that's that God is the rightful king of our lives who sent his son to die on our behalf, the guiltless for the guilty. So as we come back to the passage, because I've literally just given you a big hint here to answer how this passage displays God's promising us rest. Uh, And to do this, I want to read verses 34 through 40, because verse 40 doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it's not that here is a book, and the book is Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42. This is part of a larger passage. Let's read our way up to it, and we're going to have our answer here. Starting in verse 40, it says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now keep verses 34 to 39 in your mind. As we go into 40, uh, verse 40, Keep in mind that Christ is promising not peace, but a sword. He commands us to take up his cross and follow him daily. And he tells us that if we are unwilling to lose the love of your very family members, as you proclaim God is king, if you're unwilling to endure the shame and suffering that he himself already had to endure on the cross, then you are not worthy of being Christian. But that's okay. It's okay because verse 39 tells us that though we may lose our very lives for the sake of Christ, we gain something that is far, far superior. Because verse 40 tells us that to receive the gospel message is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to receive the one who sent Christ. And who sent Christ? It's an easy one, not your question. Who sent Christ? Huh? Um, you guys talk loud? God. God, yes. God is the one who sent Christ. And this is how the promise, this is how the passage promises rest. It's not rest from persecution. No, no, Christ promises you persecution. Christ has promised, I am sending a sword. There are going to be problems in your very own household when you stand up for the sake of Christ. There is no such thing as rest from persecution. We are not going to have a hedge of protection around us. We're not being promised rest from sickness. We're not being promised rest from poverty. We're being promised rest from being at war with God. Take a look at Matthew 10 again. What is the nature of the persecution Christians are facing? Or or let me ask you this another way. Why are people persecuting Christians in this passage? Think through it. I know it's it's been a while, but, but think through this. Why are people persecuting Christians in chapter 10? What do you think? Because they follow Christ. Because they follow Christ. Exactly. The disciples are healing people from sickness. Right? That's what Jesus sent them out to do. He said, cast out demons, the unclean spirits. He said, heal their diseases. He said, cure their afflictions. In Matthew 11... When the disciples of John the Baptist and and John ask Christ if he's the Messiah, how is it that Christ responds in verses 4 to 6? Jesus answers them. 
He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. No one is being offended because a blind man is made to see. No one is being offended because the lame are walking. Yes, even in Luke 13, when Jesus heals the bent-over woman on the Sabbath, even in John 5, when Jesus heals the lame man, and the Sadducees and Pharisees say, well, why are you carrying that mat? And then they get upset when they hear that Jesus healed him. Their problem was not just that Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. Their problem was with Jesus and his message. That is what was really causing them offense. The message of God makes the unrepentant man violently angry. To the point that the disciples of God were promised to be chased out of the very cities they went to work in, despite the fact that they were doing amazing miracles. In fact, we see this. We see this in Paul's missionary journey in, in Acts, do we not? Paul would go to a town, he'd preach the message, the people would get enraged at him, and he'd go to the next city. And it wasn't enough that he left their city. They were so mad at him and the message of Christ that they would follow him a long distance to the next city so that they could get that city mad at him. Because prior to coming to faith in Christ, man exists in a state of act of rebellion against God. And I, I'm going to tell you this. As someone who has had a chance to witness to people who claim they don't believe God exists, die-hard atheists, the more you talk to someone like that, the more apparent it's going to become that they absolutely believe in God. They, they'll sit there and say, well, I don't believe in God. And you'll talk to them. You'll, you'll bring them to the Bible. You'll say, why don't you? And, and you'll explain scripture to them. And the more you talk to them, the anger they're going to get at you because they believe in God and they hate him. Now, I don't want you to raise hands here. Keep, keep them down this time. I'm going to ask a question. Don't answer it. Who here has ever been mad at someone? And, and I don't just mean, oh, you. I mean, who has been deeply burning with anger at someone to the point where you might say you hated them at least in that moment? I, I have. I, I've been there. And do you know what word I would use to describe that state of being? It's exhausting. It is exhausting to truly and fully hate someone where every time you're around them, you seethe. When you're apart from them, you sit stewing, thinking about the thing they did to you and thinking about ways that you might be able to one-up them and doing something back to them. Contrast that to the state of the Christian in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus speaking says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come to Christ, God promises to give us rest. Rest from the exhausting state of being at war of God. Rest from the endless and impossible task of earning salvation on our own. 
We are freed from the cruel yoke of sin that promises us freedom while at the same time enslaving us to our sin. And instead, given the light and easy yoke of Christ that brings us freedom that can only exist and can only be experienced by those who are walking in active obedience to God's statutes. Whoever receives one of the disciples, believing the gospel message, is receiving Christ. And whoever is receiving Christ is receiving God and entering into his promised rest. Now, for the rest of the time, we're going to be discussing four truths about rewards. Uh, and I know it's a bit of a, a jarring transition, but these, these are two major thoughts that are going in this passage. The result of receiving the gospel message, the peace that brings us, and then the rewards that God has promised us. So, four truths about the rewards of Christian, for Christian living. And the first truth is that God is the one who sets the criteria for, giving his, for, for us receiving his rewards. And we see this immediately in verse 40, don't we? I mean, God states, whoever receives a disciple is receiving him. He's the one setting the rules. There's no external board of advisors who collectively came together to provide God with some sort of framework for what the award levels should be and who should be getting them. It's not a decision by committee. There was no one giving God feedback, providing suggestions. And the Bible makes this very clear in James 1.12, where James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So according to James 1.12, what must you do to receive the crown of life? I know I don't give you all much time to, to jump around. I, I do apologize. That's my, my style. Uh, there's, there's so much beautiful scripture to cover, and I, I do move quickly. So I'll read it again for you. James 1.12, Bless the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promises to those who love him. What must you do to receive the crown of life? Yes. Stay steadfast. Stay steadfast. Exactly. You must stay steadfast under trial. And was James the one who decided this? It's an easy one. No, no, of course not. No, James was not the one who decided this. God was the one who decided what you must do to receive the crown of life. And then he told us through the pen of James. Now, I do want you to turn here. I'll give you a chance. It's going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, first four verses. I'll give you all a minute here. 1 Peter 5. Go ahead and turn down your Bible. All right, I still hear turning, but I also see a lot of people sitting, so I'm going to assume that most of us are here. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. It says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Reading the passage here, 
You can look back down, it's okay. What does God require for you to receive the unfading crown of glory? Just, just shout them out. He, there's a whole litany of things that, that are listed here in this passage. Name one of the things that God is required to receive the unfading crown of glory. You have to be willing to be what God wants you to be. You have to be willing to be what God wants you to be, yes. It has to be voluntary. You can't be co- coerced. What's something else it lists here? Be bold and courageous. I, I, you, you literally, if you, you close your eyes and point to something, I almost guarantee you, you're going to be getting a right answer on this. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be exercising oversight. And in fact, who is the one needing to exercise oversight? It's like one of the first things it talks about. The shepherd. The, the shepherd. We're, we're talking about elders here. Uh, Paul, or excuse me, Peter is talking about as a fellow, fellow elder, uh, I am exhorting the elders among you to behave in this manner. So he talks about you have to be an elder. You have to shepherd the flock. You have to volunteer. Yes, uh, you, you have to be an example, uh, not forced into the role. You need to be doing this not for personal gain. And you have to be not domineering over others. And this is just some quick examples. God has set clear criteria for receiving his rewards. But why does it matter who establishes the criteria for receiving a reward? Well, it's because recognizing that God is the one who establishes what actions deserve rewards is the first step in recognizing that God is, in fact, sovereign over giving those rewards. There's a temptation, isn't there, to complain. Just blanket statement. There is a temptation to complain over just about anything. Uh, I don't have the same car that person has. I don't have the same wage that person has. I don't have the same hairline that person has. Okay, maybe not. you're not at that state, but it's going to come, boys. You're going to see. I'm not at the same weight that person is. I can't bike as fast as that guy did. There is a temptation in our hearts to complain. And there is certainly a temptation when we consider the rewards that God gives out and the roles that God assigns for our different lives to complain and say, is God really worthy to say who gets what? We see this even in the disciples. In Matthew 20, uh, starting around verse 20, we see that the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, comes up to Jesus. And she says, I have a request for you. Now, there's a companion passage, and it makes it clear that the people really asking were James and John. Okay, so James and John get their mom, apparently, to ask Jesus if we can sit at your right and left hand. And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You don't know what you are asking me. And they say, yes, we are able. And he says, you will drink my, my cup. But it is not, uh, it, it is not, um, let me read this exactly, excuse me. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And, verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They didn't even, Jesus didn't even promise them what they had asked for, and the ten were complaining in their heart because they felt like the, the, the James and John had somehow gotten something special. They weren't willing to accept at that moment 
that Jesus, and in fact, God, was sovereign and who got this position of honor. They were ready to complain about something that wasn't even given. Just the idea that someone else would have it. But it is God's right to establish who gets rewarded. He is sovereign over all things, and the fact that he chooses to reward us with anything is only because of his overwhelming love for us. And this is made clear for us in Ephesians 2, verse 10. We're told that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, what? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good things we do that God rewards us for, we don't do ourselves. All right, we, we, don't, we don't set this up ourselves. God has to prepare them beforehand for us to even to get them. If it was up to us, even once I came to Christ, I wouldn't be able to earn anything. God has to give me the opportunity so that I can earn something from him. And this is the second truth about God's rewards. God is the one who gives his rewards. If we look at these verses again, back in Matthew 10, Jesus talks about us receiving uh, four different people. Now, the first one is in verse 40, and he technically talks about receiving three people in that verse. Uh, whoever receives his disciple, whoever receives, is receiving Christ, is receiving God. So the, the ultimate point of verse 40 is we're talking about people who receive God. That's the first type of people uh, that we see. We see four in total. The first one is receiving God. Who are the other three people that this, these three verses talk about uh, receiving? And, and it's not hard to get it. It, it says each one like five times in a row, okay? What's, what's that? Prophet. Yeah, so we're talking about receiving God. We talk about receiving a prophet. What else? Yeah, we talk about receiving a righteous man. And there's one more at the very end. Not a disciple. Little man. Little man. That's it. We talk about receiving God, a prophet, a righteous man, and uh, the little ones, uh, which is talking about, from a human perspective, who we'd consider those humble in spirit. They are a Christian, but they are who we'd say are the least of these. Uh, now, this passage is not suggesting you get a better reward for receiving a prophet than you get for receiving a uh, a man of humble means. Uh, nor is it suggesting uh, that, you know, you get a special thing for receiving a righteous person. That's not the point that we are trying to make in this passage. It's not the point God was trying to make in the passage. The point is God is trying to explain a spiritual concept using an earthly example. If you do something good for a prophet from an earthly perspective, who is the one who's rewarding you? The prophet. If I do something nice for a prophet, from an earthly perspective, the prophet is the one who goes, hey, thank you, Matthew, for doing this. Let me do something nice for you. Uh, and we see this, actually, in 2 Kings chapter 4. We see that there is a, a wealthy uh, Shunammite woman who wants to do something nice for Elisha. She sees that Elisha comes through her city often. She's very wealthy. She talks to her husband and says, I want to do something nice for Elisha. So she builds a guest room for him. And Elisha is very thankful for this. And so he gives her a prophet's reward. That is, he re rewards her. Uh, he talks to his servant and he says, what can I do to repay their kindness? And the servant responds, well, she has no children. So Elisha prophesizes that she will have a son by this time next year. And she does at that. It is a reward 
that a righteous man wouldn't be able to give, right? We see in the Old Testament that the prophets were given unique abilities to the Holy Spirit. A righteous man, though being good, wouldn't be able to do the things a prophet would. So the one who receives a prophet is going to receive a prophet's reward. Uh, likewise, if we were to receive a righteous man, they would give us a reward that is superior from an earthly perspective to one that one of humble means would be able to provide. And yet, here's the actual point. In verse 42, we see that even if we give someone of truly humble means, someone that the people today would consider as being rock bottom of the social ladder, if we give them nothing except a cup of water, God has a reward in store for you. Now, in the society of the day, a cup of water was considered the most basic level of common courtesies you could give someone. And yet, God says, even if you do this most basic act, something that if you didn't do, you'd be being rude to that person. If you do it because they are a brother or sister in Christ, he has a reward for you. God is ultimately the one who is giving his rewards. And he does so based on his own criteria. And of course, we've already seen this in the passages we've referenced. Uh, in Matthew 20, 23, in response to James and John asking to sit at the right and left hand of Christ, uh, Jesus responded to sit at my right and left hand is not mine to grant, but it is those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. God is the one who gives the rewards. The third truth this passage tells us about God's rewards and where I really want to spend the last little bit of uh, the time here, we, we will obviously get to the fourth truth, don't worry. Uh, but where I want to spend the, the last bulk of my few minutes here is God has a purpose in giving his rewards. And I want to spend the bulk of my time because I really want to make certain that we truly understand the reason God gives rewards. Uh, one of the college I, colleges I attended was Dallas Baptist University. And while I was there, I was required to take a class along with almost every other student who walked through those campus doors. And as I sat under this man's teachings, I became increasingly horrified that this man was allowed to teach the word of God. His theology was so warped. And people would leave, his, students would leave his class raving about how he had taught them so much. And it burdened me because I knew that he was teaching them bad stuff. And I mean really bad. Uh, I don't know how many Christians left his class thinking that they were bad Christians because they weren't living a sin-free life. And that was his fundamental teachings, that if you have any sin in your life whatsoever, you're messing up as Christian, and that a true Christian will live sin-free. But as the class progressed, around the middle of the semester, we reached his main thesis in life. This is where he hung all his other beliefs on. And that was, as Christians, our primary concerns should be on collecting rewards for ourselves to exist in heaven. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound too bad. You're probably going that. Yes. Uh, aren't we instructed to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven when neither rust nor destroys, uh, or moth destroys, nor thief breaks in to steal? That's Matthew 6 20, right? Uh, what's, what's the issue here? Well, the issue is that he took one of the key passages for, for his, his thesis in life as Hebrews 12, which states, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, so far no problem, 
let's say aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This man taught that, that these verses proved that Christ joyfully looked forward to the cross so that he might attain a reward for himself. And if Christ was joyfully looking forward to the reward, then we ought to be looking forward to our rewards as well. And this is grossly wrong. And it's not only misunderstanding the passage, it is misunderstanding so much of the New Testament. I, I mean, this is why his, the fact that his belief hung on this bad interpretation of Hebrews uh, 12, it's why the rest of his theology was wrong. John 17 once talks about Jesus being in the garden. Excuse me, no. Uh, that's the next one. Excuse me. John 17, 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, not so that he may receive rewards, but so that the Son may glorify the Father. And in Luke 22, 41 through 44, where this is where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, excuse me, since got that backwards, uh, he, would, he withdrew a stone's throw away from the disciples, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening, from, and strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Christ did not look forward to the cross with joy because of some reward he thought he was going to get, but so that he could glorify the Father so that he could be an example for us for endurance under the worst of all circumstances. God has a purpose in giving us rewards, and it's not so that we can greedily accumulate them. Now, let me tell you right now, if, if doing good, if your joy for doing good and obeying the Bible is so that you can get some reward from Christ, you got your reward already. That feeling of self-satisfaction, that's your reward. I hope you enjoy it. But... If this is the case, why would God tell us about the rewards at all? If we're not supposed to be concerned with accumulating them, why tell us about this? And how do we reconcile a verse like uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Well, God tells us about the rewards because he has a purpose, and he wants us to know what the purpose is in giving us rewards. Because the point is not that we get the reward, but that we understand what it is God requires of us to obtain that reward. In every passage we've gone over tonight, the point of him saying, you're going to get a crown of life, you're going to have the unfading crown of glory, it was not, the point of the passage was not about the reward itself. The point of the passage was about the obedience of the people who got the reward. And the purpose of the reward also is so that we may lay them at the feet of God at the end of time. In Revelations 4, 8, which is the last passage uh, I'm going to talk about tonight, John describing his vision of the throne of God, which was surrounded by the four living creatures. He writes, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and who is seated on the throne. 
sneeze one. Who's seated on the throne? God. God, and specifically Jesus. They, so they fall down before the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, and they cast down their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God's purpose in giving rewards is so that we might glorify him for all eternity, laying them at his feet in recognition of the fact that God alone is worthy to receive all our honor, glory, and power as the one who made it possible to have anything to present to him at all in the first place. So the fourth and final truth of this passage as we wrap things up tonight tells us that God's reward, or the fourth and final truth about uh, God's rewards is that God has set a time for them. I'm not going to turn into any more passages. Just think about passages we've already gone over. In 1 Peter 5, 4, uh, when are we told that we receive the unfading crown? It's when the shepherd arrives. There is a timing that God has in store or in mind for when we receive these rewards. So how can we apply this to our lives? Well, first and foremost, as we've already gone over, you should examine yourself and make sure that you have received God's chief reward, which is peace and rest in him. If you're still in a state where an, an enemy of God's disciples, then turn away from that so that you might experience this chief of his rewards. Second, remember that God is sovereign. He's the one who sets the criteria, and he's the one who decides who gets what reward. And he does it justly and fairly. Third, remember that the point of doing good is not to get a reward, but to glorify God with our obedience. And fourth, remember when you're in the midst of a trial, your suffering's not in vain. God has promised you peace and rest. God has promised your suffering will not return void. There's a purpose to it. And finally, be mindful of how we're treating God's disciples. I mean, that's the first thing he talks about in, in John, uh, Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives my disciples, receives me. Are you receiving your fellow believers like you'd be receiving Christ? In verse 42, when he says, if you just do the basic, basic, not being rude to the person, I have a reward set for you. Are you even leaving, are you even meeting that level of faithfulness toward other believers? Or is there that one guy, you know him, excuse me, who just irritated you for some reason? And you just, you want nothing to do with him. And every time he shows up, you make sure, you, you make sure he knows that you really don't want him there or her. I, I say him because I was that guy. There's a reason. Um, but are you meeting that basic level of courtesy? And obviously, we shouldn't be meeting the basic level. We should be far exceeding it. Whatever the reason for treating someone uh, distantly, let us make sure that we are treating fellow disciples of God in a manner worthy of our calling to which he has called us. Guys, thank you for, uh, for enduring my first lesson with y'all. I greatly enjoyed it. I remember Sage. And that's about it. <laughs> thank you, guys. We're going to clap, clap, man. <laughs> <laughs>